Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Here's Johnny! The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. The desert was the apotheosis of all deserts, huge, standing to the sky for what looked like eternity in all directions. It was white and blinding, waterless and without feature, save for the faint, cloudy haze of the mountains, which sketched themselves on the horizon in the devil grass, which brought sweet dreams, nightmares, death. An occasional tombstone sign pointed the way, for once a drifted track that cut its way through the thick crust of alkali had been a highway. Coaches and bookers had followed it. The world had moved on since then. The world had emptied. Hello and welcome back to the Constant Reader podcast. And today we're going to be doing something a little different. This is the first part of a hopefully a multi-part series where we'll be looking at the entire Dark Tower series. And we're also going to be looking at a Stephen King book that um, I am a little ambivalent about. I've always been a little um, ambivalent about the Dark Tower series as a whole. As you've probably guessed by now from the previous few episodes, I am a massive Stephen King fan but there's always something about the Dark Tower that's put me off. Maybe it's my own problematic relationship with epic fantasy. Maybe it's the style, which is certainly different from the normal run-of-the-mill king. Or maybe it's just something else entirely, helping me to find out my own problems, my own deep-seated neuroses regarding the man called Roland and his quartet, is, I am very happy to say, Ben Krusk. Am I saying that correctly, You Krusk? are indeed, yes. From Archant Media, digital archivist and plenty more besides, and we're talking about that later as well. But in the meantime, say hello, Ben. Hi there. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you because you are, um, uh, can I use the term expert in the Dark Tower series? I mean, expert is strong, uh, passionate fan. I think that's good enough for us. I think that's good enough for us. Yeah, absolutely. So today we'll be looking at the first volume, The Gunslinger. Mm -hmm. I will say I will be looking at the recently revised, not recently, 2003's revised and expanded edition. Mm -hmm. So um, forgive me if I make any mistakes regarding the, uh, the original text. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is like the probably the fourth time I've read this book because I've read it before. I read it when I was a kid, when I was first getting into King, and I, 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 I just didn't get it. Okay. I've read it a few more times as an adult, and I've stopped because it bored me slightly. Okay. It, it seemed a little drawn out, a little, um, I don't know, overly stylized, perhaps, in its use of language and character. Sure. But I, this is the fourth time I've read it, and I, I, I enjoyed it more now. And I don't know yeah. if it's something about coming back to it as an adult, like as a grown man, that yeah. makes it different somehow. But I, I, I did enjoy it, and I will be making the effort to go through each book in the series, yes. hopefully with you, and kind of finding out what's actually going on here. So um, tell me about your relationship with the Dark Tower trilogy. When, when did you read them first? Was it, was it love at first sight? It was for me. I think I was very compelled by the plot and the imagery, and I know that it is a bit of a diversion from his usual trope, as it were. But I um, I think, you know, with some books, you you read them at the right time in your life when you sort of you you are susceptible to different imagery or different ideas or different styles of, sure. of novels. And so for me, I read The Dark Tower for the first time when I was about... 
15, 16, and I've always been very interested in American history and American culture. Mm-hmm. And so to come across a book that was, A, written by an author that I really, really liked, um, but also to be facing... Um, western sort of imagery but interspersed with horror mm-hmm. and to have that in a very familiar package from Stephen King it for me just resonated at the right time I think and I actually then went on when I was when I was 17 I went on a big family holiday to New England ah, yes. and I got to travel and I got to see uh, a lot of the film locations whether that's the canals from it or if that's the 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 human cemetery which is the pet cemetery uh, in the film uh so i started reading these books at a time when i was kind of falling in love with american culture and american sure. history so yeah for me it's it's been tied to other things which have made it more that's uh, interesting it's interesting you say that as well because this is very much um a mashup of a book yes king talks about the fact that he wrote it because he was influenced by european writers People like, well, obviously, uh, Tolkien is like the main touchstone for yeah. these things. It was his idea to, to write an epic that would be a rival to Lord of the Rings, essentially. Yeah. So there's a very European sensibility, and mm-hmm. there's a very European idea of fantasy in the book as well. But there are also these kind of strange Western ideas. Because yeah. he says the two influences for writing The Dark Tower were Lord of the Rings yep. and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Of course, yeah. And I, I think coming to it now as a, at a fourth time, I really appreciated that idea of a blending of an American Western archetype yeah. with a very European ideal. Yeah. And did, did that kind of work for you? Was it kind of incongruous yeah. to have these these sections where you'd have lords and ladies in their castles eating these feasts, but then they're all wearing blue jeans? Yes, I think it's a... I see this as an intertextual playground for King. I feel mm-hmm. that he's really brought together... Um, his his comfort zone, but also introduced these different ideas of, like you say, the 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 Tolkienian epic um, and the, the 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 Western quest and the the man with no name standing sure. about fifty feet tall on the cinema screen and looking out over the desert with a squint in his eye. Mm. Um, I. I think it works really well, but I do realise it's a bit of a Marmite series for Stephen King fans. Um, yeah, he's, he's talked before about speaking to large groups of people and he'll ask, um, you know, who's read one of my books? And naturally, everybody puts up their hands because they've come here to see Stephen King, they're a fan. And then he'll say, who here has read The Dark Tower? Yeah. And the number will go down dramatically. Yes, yes. And it is one of the things, and the fact that it came out at a time when he had made a commitment to the horror genre. Mm-hmm which he did around Salem's Lot. He yes. was told that if he wanted to publish Salem's Lot, he would always, always be known as a horror guy. And he said, yeah. I don't care. That's fine. Horror guy's great. <laughs> so again, this is, this is kind of, this diverts from it slightly. Yes. But it's not his first diversion. Have you read Eyes of the Dragon? Uh, I haven't read that one, I'm afraid, no. Because I like that one. It's a standalone fantasy novel that came out around the same time, I okay. think, written kind of for young adults. Yeah. And it contains a lot of, I think, the DNA for the Dark Tower. Okay. So again, you've got the idea of... Um, a sorcerer who inveigles himself into a royal family okay. and kind of disturbs equilibrium and kind of corrupts society. Yeah, and it's also got the kind of the, uh, the idea of this this um, this hero who loses his innocence. Okay, throughout the book to yes. kind of obtain the this quest. Yes, and so that's a really interesting one to look at. And like I said, I liked that one a lot. Dark Tower again, it was kind of cold for me for a while, but coming to it now and seeing where that's coming from. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 um, it's, it's it's more interesting. So he's come to this throughout his career a lot. Mm-hmm. These are what seven books in total. 
Well, eight if you count Wind Through the Keyhole, which came out in 2012. Which and is, do you count Wind Through the Keyhole? Uh, I do count. I do count <laughs> it. I mean, it is very much in bed. I mean, it is a, it's, a, it's an additional kind of um, footnote to the story that happens to embed itself. I believe it's between um, uh, the, the Wizard and Glass and then the um, the following book. So I think that's... Uh, Song of... Wolves of Calor? Yeah, it? Wolves of Calor, yes. Wolves of Calor. Yeah, and so that, that sits between those two. And it is another sort of a, a recollection and a flashback almost. Mm-hmm. But it, as I say, it came out much later than the rest of them. But yeah, so technically it's eight, but the sort of the... The the Dark Tower series in terms of its trajectory as it as that plot line is seven sure. eight with the additional flashback. And it's interesting you say that because the whole the, the narrative of even the first book it goes back and forth a lot. Yeah. You're never in one space, and there's also this idea of like stories within stories. Yes, at the beginning of the book, Roland the gunslinger is. Um, it's following the the man in black, mm-hmm. not Johnny Cash. <laughs> Turns out to be Walter O'Dim, a sinister sorcerer. But uh, he's following him through the desert, and he meets this chap called Brown, yes. who's a kind of a half crazy corn farmer. Yep. And then he tells him a story which takes yeah. up like a a good third of the book already. It does yeah. So you already have the idea of a story within a story, and then he continues to flash back to his own childhood a lot. Mm-hmm. And it, it's quite impressive in a way that for a, quite a small book, he managed to pack so much in there. It, he does. He definitely does. And as that that idea of um, the the stories within stories and uh, what role that plays to the plot. I mean, that's that's important throughout the whole series. But mm. in the Gunslinger, he does. He he captures. I think it's a beautiful way to to build up the character of Roland and capture. Look, he's this this rugged, quite silent. Sure. Uh, you can almost tell he's a bit of an anti-hero from the get-go, and especially oh, definitely. After you can see that Clint Eastwood archetype there, yes, absolutely. Even down to like the the constant rolling of the cigarettes yes. and that kind of uh, the laconic way he speaks to yeah. people. He doesn't uh, give too much away. He's very yeah. mysterious, you know. Yeah. And uh, no, I think that the 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 text within text approach to capturing some of that backstory and building up the character, I think that's a that's a really I, I like that approach because it's more. Um, subtle uh, than it's it's the old um, show don't tell rule yeah, in absolutely. writing, isn't it? You you build your characters by showing their actions, showing their values through that, as opposed to just saying, "Oh, he is a he is a very silent. He is the silent type." Mm. Or having some character say that to them, you know, it's nicer to get it from these stories. And uh, yeah, so I like that mechanism a lot. I think that was one of the things that put me off to begin with was because King is kind of recognised for writing very realistic, very down-home characters who talk and make mistakes and um, have these kind of interactions with people that are very recognisable to us. And when I first read The Gunslinger, Roland just seemed like the antithesis of that. (laughs) He is kind of like a... He's an archetype. He's that mythic hero guy who doesn't like feature in any of the earlier King novels. You have like people like Jack Torrance who are these very beautifully written but very... kind of fallible, very yeah. kind of gruesome, twisted, broken people. Yes. And that's what makes him so interesting. Mm-hmm. But Roland is it's it's do you, do you think it's hard to get to know the character? I mean we're gonna be talking about the gunslinger today, mm-hmm. but throughout the rest of the books, do we get more of a rounded person? Because at the moment he just seems driven by this one thing. He's yes. gotta find the dark tower. Yes. Get the man in black. And he does things in that journey, mm-hmm. like uh, betraying this kid 
uh, Jake. Yes. Yeah. Which you think is absolutely horrible. You yes. think it's absolutely ghastly. But he kind of he, he just gets through it. it it's it's, it's yeah. a sacrifice he has to make. Yes, he does have this almost um, drive for the tower is relentless. Sure. And he is w- the, in this novel, you are shown, I think, in two instances that he is willing to make sacrifice at any cost. Whether that's when uh, when we get the flashback when he's talking to far- the farmer Brown mm-hmm. and he talks about his passing through the um, Tull, the Tull, the village of Tull, indeed. Yeah. And he, the dead he, village of Tull. The dead village of Tull, where yeah. he, he eventually uh, sort of has a, a run-in with a local priestess who has been visited by the man in black. And yeah, she, Patty, she, yeah. she leaves, oh, sorry, the man in black leaves the, the village as a, as a trap. Mm-hmm. And when he then goes on to massacre the entire village, including shooting his lover at the time, Ali, in the face, basically. Yeah. He I gives mean, a tally at the end and says, like, 19 yes. children as well. The door ripped off its hinges and fell straight in, making a flat hand clap. Dust puffed up from the floor. Men, women and children charged him. Spittle and Stovewood flew. He shot his guns empty and they fell like nine pins in a game of points. He retreated into the barbershop, shoving over a flour barrel, rolling it at them, throwing a pan of boiling water that contained two nicked straight razors. They came on, screaming with frantic incoherency. From somewhere, Sylvia Pitson exhorted them, her voice rising and falling in blind inflections. He pushed shells into hot chambers, smelling the aromas of shave and tonsure, smelling his own flesh as the calluses at the tips of his fingers singed. I mean, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of think of the, the Lord of the Rings scenes where Gimli and Legolas are having their competitions about how many people they can kill, and I sort of think, oh, it does not does nod to that uh, or... Pr- pre-exist that a bit but um yes and then also with the i I, i'm sure we'll get to more discussion about his relationship with jake because that becomes very important to Mm. the the series as a whole but um when he lets jake fall under in in the tunnels under the the mountains i mean you are shown look this guy isn't messing around he is the last of the gunslingers he's the last of the line of the eld and um he is he's got a job to do but I, I can say that throughout the rest of the novels you do, he becomes more human, he becomes more rounded mm. and uh, you realise that yes he is a flawed human being and uh, he is a he is a dark somewhat reserved type but there are some stony ethics that underline him as a character that will eventually show through. Yeah, And we do get to see kind of the making of him as a person as well because we go back to him training as a gunslinger yeah. under this rather brutal guy called Court. Yes. And we also see the kind of the 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 their ultimate uh, the denouement to their relationship in which they basically have to try and kill each other <laughs> which is a very gruesome very horrible scene. It's visceral, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and you do get the idea that they take these children very young and turn them into like psychopaths basically that, that they are and th- that's a really strange thing to get your head around like the idea that they live in a society that is supposed to be just and genteel and chivalrous like uh, Arthur and the Round Table but they are taking these children and burning the humanity out of them yeah, yeah. there's a wonderful sequence where Roland and Cuthbert uh, they're, they're made to go to the hanging of the man that they've betrayed yeah. the cook yeah. and they, they, they both have these kind of very strange reactions to it Cuthbert like really doesn't want to see it. Yeah. But then at the end says, okay, no, I, I like that, that's fine. Yeah. But Roland, he keeps his cards close to his chest and yeah. doesn't really know how to feel about these mm-hmm. things. 
he's still got that vestigial conscience, yes. you know? Yes. And I think that's a really... It's a weird society. I'm kind of being introduced here. I mean, he's 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 a knight, isn't he? I mean, he's a he's a he's a gunslinger, and it's it's the yeah. There's a samurai culture as well. Yeah, it's kind of that concept, yeah. and the rites of passages that he goes through, whether that's through defeating court or through sleeping uh, with the prostitute afterwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is coming from boyhood to manhood but they do know that he is the youngest gunslinger ever to receive his guns yeah and um, the, the one before that was his father the one before was his father so i mean there is quite a regal legacy almost in his in his nobility in his bloodline sure and um i i i, I like those flashback sequences because it does it captures the his origins and it uh it explores what what sort of does he carry over? What is his inheritance? And yeah. not, he hasn't just inherited two revolvers that um, are his weapons. He has inherited this this idea of honour and obligation and duty, mm. and that 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 comes. But it's also with a him. dehumanizing process as oh, well. Is, Absolutely, yes, yeah, because um, they, they, later on during the the massacre at Tal, he talks about the fact that his, his hands are doing a trick. Yes, like the reloading. Like yeah. it's like he becomes the machine. He becomes an mm-hmm. extension of the gun. Mm-hmm. And throughout the training, you get the idea that he's not being trained. He's a, he's a weapon that's being yeah. honed. Yes, he's being polished, and he's being like he's getting that edge. He's mm-hmm. getting the edge, so other people could kind of use him as a weapon yeah. rather than the person. Yes, like I, I find that quite uh, quite despairing. If, if yeah, <laughs> he does almost he he almost becomes sort of like an automated robot when he goes into that gunfight, and you mm. are this idea of like spinning the barrel and sort of making these almost magical reloads that yeah. you know, sort of think would just look amazing on on screen. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a sequence where he's, he's using the hand cart in the tunnels and he yes. talks about the fact he's just pistoning his arms up and down like yeah. a machine. He's becomes yeah. mechanical. Yeah. And what machinery there is left in this world is, yes. is um, he's, he's, he's more he's more adapted to that yeah. and more adapted to things like the, the demon in, in the forest yeah. than he is to actual people. He's got yeah. more in common with these but then I think alien concepts in later books, and I mean it, it happens in the second book. I mean he uh, that idea of his um, unswerving strength and his his resilience comes into question because his body doesn't. I mean there are, there are plot developments where he is no longer as able to rely on those old tricks, those oh, old okay. habits, that, that strength and that idea of aging and sort of losing that. Mm-hmm. That quickness, that agility, that ferociousness, that then becomes part of his character and adds another dynamic and a more human dynamic to it. Now so, that's interesting. Yeah, I look so forward that, to that. That, that, that does come to play. Just a, just a quick sidebar. You said earlier that, um, a few minutes ago, that when he's reloading the guns, yeah. it would look cool on screen. Steve, does it look cool on screen? No, it looks absolutely awful. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I concur with that sentiment. <laughs> I am, I am, because like I said, I, I, I am hoping to cover all the books. Yep. And then the film at some point. Oh, I haven't gosh. seen the film. I'm trying not to get many preconceptions, but every time I mention the Dark Tower film to anybody, they always get that look on their face. Uh, Don't bother. Like they're thinking about their grandmother's funeral. I, I, <laughs> so that's three pounds fifty. I regret spending on Amazon Prime. Shall we say? Oh, there you go. Okay, that bad. Eh? <laughs> you probably have more enjoyment at your grandmother's funeral. Oh, yes. oh there you go. Thank you. <laughs> well, we we'll have to cover it eventually. I'm afraid. So you might have to watch it again. <laughs> So one of the things I noticed about this particular reading of uh, The Gunslinger was how much 
it reminded me of other King novels mm-hmm. because I know he's talked about the fact that he works the ideas of the Dark Tower yeah. quite subtly and often not subtly into other novels. And it reminded me a lot of, have you read The Stand? Yes, yes. It reminded me a lot of The Stand in terms of its location. Yep. In terms of its, in terms of its, its concept, its, mm-hmm. its characters, its kind of father-son dynamic. Like in this one, you've got the gunslinger and Jake. And in The Stand, you've got Larry and the feral kid who yeah. kind of travel together for a while. And their relationships are fraught. So, I, I mean, did you, do you kind of read other King novels and see the Dark Tower in them quite easily? I do, I do. It's very intertextual. A lot of the the uh, references to other plot lines and uh, to familiar locations. I mean, to, to use the example you mentioned, The Stand, I believe, um, and this isn't giving too much away, but in the uh, Wizard and Glass, at the end of that, they, they enter a, a world which has been devastated by Captain Trips and the Superflu. So, ah, I mean, okay, so cool. they do directly play into uh, each other. Mm-hmm. And you sort of think, well, how intentional was it? And I think there's um, other instances where the Crimson King, who becomes the eventual sort of the, the, sure. the, the nemesis within the, within the plot, he... Uh, um, he's the antagonist in Insomnia. Yes, he's Absolutely. in Insomnia, yeah. yes. So there are a lot of these intertextual relevance uh, sort of references... Um, and yeah, I think I think the, the the stand for me is a particularly potent one because the 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 scenery and the landscape and the notion of a journey and getting, and going over the mountains. Because well, in the, the stand, mountains. you've got the two disparate groups who are yes. separated by the mountains, yes. and to actually get from one to the other, you have mm. to make that journey. This yes. kind of arduous journey, you have to to make the stand you have to do that yeah absolutely and uh, no so and i think in in the wastelands is when the the, the stand really sort of that relatable imagery re- reappears again as well so mm-hmm. yeah i do i do see this as a kind of a magnum opus for him it brings together his almost entire canon i mean mm. there are little bits and pieces that you recognize here and there whether it's hey jude playing on a jukebox yeah. or um something more direct as Father Callahan coming back. I mean, yeah, that's something I'm really excited about because yeah. as I spoke to Steph McKenna in my interview about Salem's Lot, that is my favourite King novel. Mm-hmm. And to kind of see that come back again in the figure of Father Callahan, who's a very kind of interesting, ambiguous figure in that novel, who has this kind of trial of faith and is found wanting. And then I honestly like if he redeems himself. I'm not going to spoil King's it. Big on, King's spoil big on redemption. You he, know? He, he, He's yeah. big on redemption. He so is, he I, is, I hope indeed. that happens, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that one very much. Um, so what did you make in The Gunslinger? I assume this is going to be in the other books as well, about this relationship between this world. What, what do we call the world of The Gunslinger? Um, well, the... I believe it's Midworld. I believe it's Midworld that he's in. And then, Midworld. And then our world... Uh, yeah, I maybe stand corrected on this, but it's then the Keystone world is our world. So okay. the one that we know, the one that we relate to, uh, that becomes sort of the nexus. So there are, there are, there's a nexus of the Dark Tower and then the nexus of reality is the Keystone world. But Roland's world is uh, Midworld. Because uh, that's, that's what intrigued me is the fact that Jake is obviously from, I suppose, our world. Yes, correct. Yeah. But it's never really explained why he's there. And the bit where he talks about his life in New York City, mm-hmm. I, I think it's really well written and it, yeah. it, it feels kind of very yeah. interesting in the book because that seems like the fantasy world. 
the way they describe New York makes it seem like a, a strange <laughs> world because you're already ingrained in Midworld. Yes, yeah. So, you know, um, Roland says that he, he, he finds it hard to believe the idea of, like, uh, skyscrapers yeah. or, you know, carriages moving without mm-hmm. horses and things like yeah. that. And I really like that kind of interplay between our world and yeah. this world. Yes. Is that something that reoccurs? It, it, it does, and that, that connectedness uh, between different... And it's it's a time thing as well, so it's different times and different planes of reality, oh, okay. or different universes or realities. Um, and I, 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 it becomes very important because it impacts the characters that come into the novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jake has his own influences from his times that he brings with him, and then further down the line, as other characters are drawn into it, they bring it with them. Um, but I just think that it's uh, that 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 almost interdimensional aspect to it i i i think that's uh, it's crucial to this idea of there are there are all of these different realities there are other worlds than this indeed yeah. as, as jake says as he falls <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, into the abyss um, <laughs> probably wishful thinking on his part i hope yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a world where i'm not falling yes. to my death well, from a trestle <laughs> that's that, uh, that is that is crucial to the text and um but yes, it does. It, it, you you sort of you, you you find yourself getting comfortable with Roland and his quest and his dusty existence mm. on the road to the tower, and then bang, you're in New York in yeah. I believe the seventies. I believe it's it when. feels like the seventies. Yeah. It feels like it's got that kind of seventies New York film vibe, yeah. like Taxi Driver, where it's quite you know Indeed. beautiful and brutal at the same time. You yeah. know, yeah, exactly. He comes to the corner and stands with his book bag at his side. Traffic roars by, grunting bloom-like buses, yellow taxis, Volkswagens, a large truck. He is just a boy, but not average, and he sees the man who kills him out of the corner of his eye. It is the man in black, and he doesn't see the face, only the swirling robe, the outstretched hands, and the hard, professional grin. He falls into the street with his arms outstretched. Not letting go of the book bag, which contains Mrs. Greta Shaw's extremely professional lunch. There is a brief glance through a polarized windshield at the horrified face of a businessman, wearing a dark blue hat in the band of which is a small, jaunty feather. Somewhere, a radio is blasting rock and roll. An old woman on the far curb screams. She is wearing a black hat with a net. Nothing jaunty about that black net. It is like a mourner's veil. Jake feels nothing but surprise in his usual sense of headlong bewilderment. Is this how it ends? Before he's bowled better than 270? He looks hard in the street and looks at an asphalt-sealed crack some two inches from his eyes. The book bag is jolted from his hand. He's wondering if he has skinned his knees when the car belonging to the businessman wearing the blue hat with a jaunty feather passes over him. It is a big, blue 1976 Cadillac with white wall firestone tyres. The car is almost exactly the same colour as the businessman's hat. It breaks Jake's back, mushes his guts to gravy, and sends blood from his mouth in a high-pressure jet. He turns his head and sees a Cadillac's flaming taillights and smoke spurting from beneath his locked rear wheels. The car has also run over the book bag and left a wide black tread on it. He turns his head the other way and sees a large grey Ford screaming to a stop inches from his body. A black fellow who has been selling pretzels and sodas from a pushcart is coming towards him on the run. Blood runs from Jake's nose, ears, eyes, rectum. His genitals have been squashed. He wonders irritably how badly he has skinned his knees. He wonders if he'll be late for school. 
Now the driver of the Cadillac is running towards him, babbling. Somewhere, a terrible calm voice, the voice of doom, says, I am a priest. Let me through. An act of contrition. The thing it reminded me most of in that regard, the idea of the two worlds, was um, The Talisman. Have you read The Talisman? I have, but a long time ago, yeah. Because it seems like Eyes of the Dragon to be kind of a... to share a lot of the DNA of the Dark Tower. Mm -hmm. Because The Talisman is about the idea that there are two worlds, Mm -hmm. and in each world everybody has their doppelganger, what they call a twinner. Okay. And the, the Jack Sawyer, the character in The Talisman, the boy, has to go into the other world to save his mother, yeah. who's in the other world. And it's and there was a sequel called Black House as well, which yes. I think dealt with that a lot more. Yes, it did, yes. And no, it's, it's interesting to keep them coming back to the idea of like parallel worlds. Yes, and the idea of doors. The idea of doors is very important. Yeah, locks and keys and, and doors. And uh, the idea of there being sort of a thinness between the worlds and realities where you can cross over and mm. open up these these ways across. Which um, is a great metaphor for, for fiction, isn't it? Yes. Because it says there is this world that you're reading about. Yeah. It's a bit like your world, but it's actually not. It's, you know, but oh. I can give you this access. I can give you, like, this... I can help you permeate the membrane between the two books. Yes. Uh, between the, this world and the book world. And I think that's what good writing does, and I think that's what King does very well. He does, and when when Jake and Roland meet for the first time, you you can sense that there is a there is a an important relationship here to be nurtured. But it's that reconciling the difference between their frames of references and how yeah. do they how do they come together on this quest and what does that bring to the dynamic of their relationship, which is explored further mm-hmm. down the line. Um, because in a way, they're both outsiders in their own world as well. Yes, they Jake are. talks about his childhood, about his parents, like. He's fairly indifferent to his parents, and they're fairly indifferent to him. His awful dad, as well. Yeah, he's, he's such a terrible dick. person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, like how how he has this life, but he, he doesn't really like connect with anybody. Yeah, he's got this. Uh, he hates professionalism. Mm-hmm. He hates that kind of studied indifference that people has. But he gets that himself as well because it's kind of in his DNA. Mm-hmm. In the same way that Roland is also like a dehumanized character is, from a yeah. from a boy again yeah. because he doesn't have that connection with other people. And I love the fact that they have a lot in common with each other. Mm-hmm. They love each other yes. more than they love the people in their own worlds. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is a lovely kind of transcendent it idea. It's very cool, that, isn't the it? Sort of the, 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 the seeds of the cartet are sown in this, in this novel. And uh, as more people join that group, they do become very close. They become... Um, a mini fellowship, as sure, it were, yeah. and um, well, the magnificent seven. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. They do, they do connect on that level of feeling, feeling disassociated from the world around them, and sort of feeling it's almost superfluous and mm-hmm. a little bit um, almost trivial, and they just have to sort of just get on and do their own thing and just find the dark tower exactly whatever it may be yeah yeah i'm quite intrigued to find out now Mm -hmm. absolutely so uh, before we wrap up our discussion of the gunslinger um did you have a favorite moment in this book gosh do i have a favorite moment i mean i think when um that's tricky i think when we uh actually realize you know what roland's gonna let him let jake fall and there is that there, that, yeah, coming to it for the first time, there is some ambiguity about whether the fact he's actually going to sacrifice yeah, him or not. Yeah, and I was and like, that, oh my god, the <laughs> gravity of that moment where um, he just takes this 
unspeakable action uh, in the pursuit of the Dark Tower, and you're like, oh, hang about, we are. We d- we're not dealing with a hero here. He's not. He's not the yeah. the white knight. He's not the white hat in a Sergio Leone yeah. uh, movie. He is definitely the black hat mm. guy. Um, so I think that for me was just really important for the insight um, into who he is as a person and a character. It's a pivotal moment, even yeah. in like I say, the first volume, even in this small, comparatively small book. Yeah. The gunslinger stood drunkenly, pallid as a ghost eyes huge and swimming beneath his forehead, shirt smeared with the white dust of his final lunging crawl. It came to him that there would be further degradations of the spirit ahead. They might make this one seem infinitesimal, and yet he would still flee it down corridors through cities, from bed to bed. He would flee the boy's face and try to bury it in constant killing, only to enter one final room and find it looking at him over a candle flame. He had become the boy. The boy had become him. He was become a werewolf of his own making. In deep dreams, he would become the boy and speak the boy's strange city tongue. It is a very pivotal moment. Uh, and uh, a follow-up question, what is your favourite Stephen King novel or adaptation, or both? My favourite Stephen King novel? Okay, I'm, I am actually going to have to say one of the Dark Tower books. I'm going to say The Wastelands, which is the third, third volume? one. Yes, okay. I find that, I, I love that as a book. It's If I had to sort of choose one that I was going to move like only read that one of the, the seven or eight however you want to see it again oh, wow. okay. it would be the third one okay so, yeah and favorite adaptation favorite adaptation I I I quite like for its culty culty value the tv series version of the stand I, I that's really, interesting I, okay. I really enjoy that I know that there's been a lot of broad acclaim about the recent uh, sort of it movies which they are fantastic oh, films yeah. don't get me wrong but in terms of the first time i actually really enjoyed sort of the the visualization or the the visual imaginings of how someone portrayed one of king's works it was that thank you very much so um before we wrap up today can you can you tell me a, a little more about the uh, the local recall project you're working on i can indeed so uh, i'm i'm the archive editor at archin and i uh, work with the google backed project to digitize the eastern daily press newspapers and um it's as well sort of scanning and digitizing newspapers has done been done before i get to um work with the technological innovation side, which is allowing us to make them voice searchable and chatbot searchable, which is quite a quite an incredible technological feat, really. I can and imagine. We uh, we're hoping that because I think um, the EDP and the Evening News, I mean, our archives are open to the public on Mondays, Wednesdays, and half a day on Tuesdays. Now, mm-hmm. um, despite that being the case, we don't have a huge amount of people come in to check That's the true. archives out because I mean, going into the archives can be an overwhelming experience if you're oh, not sure. trained, if you're not familiar with what that experience looks like and we we realized that there are i mean for the edp started in october of 1870 it's 150 years old this year and do you actually have those early editions going back to 1870 the oldest the oldest ones we have are the the mercury which go back to 1750 i mean we've got some very we've got a rich newspaper heritage in this part of the world i I think think norwich was the first city to actually have a regional newspaper is that correct outside of london yes we were one of the first um sort of regional hubs that was given a printing press and i mean that was a that was a big thing for us at the time um but yes so there are are these like decades and decades worth of stories and um we we realized right well how can we make this more accessible and that's mm. where local recall was spawned from is the idea of that 
how cool would it be to be making your breakfast in the morning and be able to say, oh, hey Alexa, what happened today in 1980? Or um, read me an article about Chrome Appear from 1980 sure. or whatever that might be. And so, yeah, I get to I get to not only be a bit of a history nerd, but I get to work with really cool technology as well. So, okay. Have you come across any particularly strange or unusual stories that have made you go, oh, that's... Uh, I, I actually... Oh, I didn't realise that happened. I did... Um, I came across, like, I, it's such a coincidence, I came across a story about a man from Stalin, and he uh, he had a, a genetic condition where he was born with feet that were two different sizes, so one foot was considerably larger than the other. Okay. And so he had a nightmare because he was, he'd either have to buy, pay more and p- buy specialised shoes or buy two pairs sure. and then, and then use them. But basically what he did was he posted a series of adverts in the Eastern Daily Press where he appealed for someone with the opposite case. <laughs> so he wanted someone with, I don't know, yeah. 13 left and a 9 right, whatever that might be. And uh, basically he found someone mm. and he found this this war veteran who um, had uh, lost a leg in <laughs> combat um, and had a prosthetic limb. But because it hinders his walking, he, had, uh, he preferred to have a smaller foot, foot on the yeah. prosthetic limb because he could then walk more easily and quickly. They found each other, they connected, and I, I, I rehashed that as an article, and I, I am ashamed to say I did get a pun into the title, and I said, Stalin Man Finds His Soulmate. Oof. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but that was that. But I just thought this, like, this, this idea of finding this just little article buried away where uh, this, this incredibly sort of random meeting of two people it's these grassroots stories which i find really fascinating as much as i realize the bigger picture history whether that's like the the tactical decisions in world war Two. for me i prefer what are, what are the details what are the people's it. stories yeah. what's the the, nuance. What's the the perspective from the bottom up rather than the top down so. yeah right on man absolutely yeah. and where can people find out more about this project you can head over to localrecall.archant.co.uk we're also on facebook and twitter um you can head over there and find out a little bit more about it and um yeah i uh I mean, it's a, it's a great project, and uh, we we it's it's just it's so cool to be working on something that's that innovative uh, in little old Norfolk. I can't wait to find out more about it. So it only remains to me to say thank you for listening to the Constant Reader podcast with my guest today, Ben Krask. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks to head researcher Dr. Linda Shepherd. Thanks to my technical producer Stephen Leslie Parks, and thanks to technical assistant Dylan Hickman. Thank you very much for making this what it is. You can write to us at the Constant Reader Podcast at gmail.com if you want to get involved, and don't forget to rate, review, like, subscribe, talk about, get the word out about this podcast to anybody who might be interested. And so it only remains for me to say. Long days and pleasant nights to you all. And may you have twice the number. Thank you very much. <laughs>